Hello, everybody. I'm here today with the one and only Andrew Harvey. And I'm just going to read you Andrew's a quick bio of Andrew. You can't possibly really do a bio of Andrew in five minutes, but I'm going to try. Uh, Andrew Harvey is an internationally acclaimed poet, novelist, translator, mystical scholar, and spiritual teacher. He has written and edited more than 30 books, including the best-selling titles The Hope and the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. He has won the Christmas Humphreys Prize for a journey in Ladakh, the Nautilus Prize twice for The Hope and Light the Flame, and he's appeared in two recent films, Dancing in the Flames and Ethan Hawke's Seymour, an introduction. He was also the subject of the 1993 BBC film documentary, The Making of a Modern Mystic. He has taught at Oxford, Cornell University, Hobart and William Smith Colleges, the California Institute of Integral Studies, and the University of Creation Spirituality, as well as at various spiritual centers throughout the U.S. He's the founder and director of the Institute of Sacred Activism. He's a kind-hearted rascal with a pension for red peshminas, Maria Callas, White Lions, and Chicago Pizza. And that's from the book. White Lions and Chicago That's your language. Yeah, no, I know it. But I love it. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. You proved it. Um, so, I, of course, I loved it. Are you kidding me? To be human after all, right? This journey's got me bleeding in a certain kind of feeling. So we're here today. We're going to talk about my book, Rounded Spirituality, which just came out a few months ago. Randy um, Andrew has written a beautiful book forward for it. And, you know, I, I have places I'd like to begin. But if there's somewhere you want to start, let's just go with that. I would love to just plunge into the central wound with you because you analyze it so ferociously. And it's the real core of your book. And this is such astonishing writing, and I'm so honored to be able to dance with you on this because I admire so much the ferocity and passion and radical commitment to truth-telling that radiates through this extraordinary book. You plunge really into the wound when you describe on page 59 patriarchal spirituality. That's the core of the horror of the suffering. Yeah. And you say, I saw it clear as day. From pain avoidant new cage teachings to pseudo superior spiritualities to rules of discourse designed to suppress dissension to sexual abuses of authority posing as awakened offerings to a system wide exclusion of the wisdom of the divine feminine, I saw the legacy of a man based system that had spread its toxic tentacles everywhere. That is such a shattering sentence, and I think it goes to the core of your outrage, that holy, wild, ferocious outrage that burns at the core of this book against everything and anything that separates us from being right here, right now, in our bodies, related passionately, compassionately to each other as we are. And I think that is the heroic enterprise at the core of grounded spirituality. That's where it all comes from, that sacred 
rage at patriarchal dissociation and madness and chaos and obscene lack of conscience about life. And I would love to know from you where you are right now, how the experience of visioning grounding spirituality and then writing it has changed you, has brought you closer to this raw, pure vision that burns in your world. I mean, I think that, you know, if I look back on my own history, you know, I didn't I didn't have this language for this. I, I, I had the experience. Really, I was more psychologically focused than spiritually focused. You know, and, and when I worked with Alexander Lowen, who was the, the pioneer and co-founder of bioenergetics, I kept having an experience with him and in Stan Groff's holotropic breathwork of going deeply into the body, deeply into my felt experience. And at the end of those release experiences, I felt like I was in a more unified consciousness. And then I would have the experience of exploring what I now understand to be more of a patriarchal notion of something called spirituality that seemed to be really more about disconnecting from aspects of the self, bashing selfhood, bashing the localized self on the quest for this thing called the absolute self, bashing my story, bashing my feelings, bashing my ego, bashing my body, essentially bashing everything that I identified as elements of my humanness on the quest for some other equanimity experience or notion of unity that seemed completely bereft of selfhood. So when I would explore these notions of non-duality, what I now call the avoidant movement in many cases, I felt like I was just like a little boy who, you know, had been exposed or caught with my hand in the cookie jar. And my immediate response was to pick up my Captain America shield and say, I am a master. And it felt, it felt entirely, and so I have a, a, a dear friend whose son, Lowen, does this. He gets caught, and then he's done something. And then he does this immediate posturing to make us feel as though he's the one who knows. He calls himself the boss. And he was like two years old when he was doing this. Adorable. But it felt to me very similar to my experience of this thing I now call patriarchal spirituality, where they weren't really questing to be revealed and experience all that they were. They seemed to be about perfecting singular threads of consciousness, mastering one field of awareness or awakening and disconnecting and dissociating from everything messy, uncomfortable and, uh, and seemingly unresolvable. Um, or well, least- you're really talking about the massive, massive genocide of the feminine. Yeah, absolutely. And the massive genocide of the divine feminine in the feminine. Absolutely. So my, and that's why I knew to write the Apologies to the Divine Feminine. I love that book. That's one of the ways I met you first. And I loved you so much for getting up there and bleeding your apologies before the world, because it was such a heroic start to the conversation. It's time that men wept out their tears of blood at what the feminine has had to endure. But it's not enough, is it? And what we've had to endure. Exactly. And what the male has had to endure in in shattering and battering that feminine within himself. Terrible. Yes. So, Andrew, what's interesting for me is, so, you know, when I started to sort of language this and I put a definition of patriarchal spirituality out in the world a few years ago, and I was unfolding in this direction of understanding this thing called spirituality was often 
this avoidant construct. And I was, you know, this has been the last few years. If I look back on soul shaping, I started to see some of the seeds of this way of understanding reality, but a lot of it was disconnected. And when I moved into Uncommon Bond and wrote that book, I felt like I was coming more into my own integration and that was reflected in this way of understanding reality. So by the time I sat down to write Grounded, I had tried a few years earlier. I wasn't quite there yet. I didn't quite get this yet. It was almost like I'd been sold the same karmic bill of goods we all had, you know. Right. It was a huge struggle for all of us to get to anywhere near grounded spirituality. Absolutely. Well, we're, the languaging of higher than, rising above, transcending, all of it, is, it was, I, I used, It's I used, so toxic. It goes so deep into the psyche. Right. It's so hidden in the roots of our deepest and least acknowledged sex hatred, body hatred, self-hatred. That has been engendered in us to keep us slaves of a totally suicidal system. Absolutely. So, so, but so, so interesting to me is so you and I became connected a number of years ago. You know, you were completely supportive of this message that I was bringing through me. Yes. I didn't even fully understand why you were because almost nobody was. You know, I felt I have felt primarily or mostly alone with this. I mean, you know, I feel like Phil Shepard's work is congruent. I feel like Chris Sade's work is congruent. Certainly your work is. But I didn't even understand until after this book was done and after you'd done the forward for this book, I listened to an old radio show of yours years ago where you were saying all of this essentially yeah so you've been around this for much longer than i have and talking about it for much longer than i have and so how has your understanding of the roots and the impact of this patriarchal spiritual construct changed in your own experience over the last two or three decades oh god i think it's been one awful revelation after another about the extent of the psychosis When you have the United Nations scientists telling us that we have 12 years in which to change everything, otherwise we will be in apocalyptic climate freefall. And then you have the major wildlife organization announcing that a million species are on the brink of extinction. And you have a psychopath in the White House and the collapse of norms of conscience and decency on every level in every aspect of the world. You have a world in meltdown. And this is a psychotic meltdown, and it's the psychotic meltdown of the patriarchy, totally incapable of sustaining its completely insane separatist worldview, because all of the systems that it's built out of that hubris are now being eroded by their own insanity. Yes, yes. I mean, it kind of made sense to me, you know, if I feel as though just in terms of this thing called spirituality, which clearly we have to reframe and I attempted to relanguage and all the rest of that. You're talking about unity consciousness of the whole being with the whole being. That, so that's the real unity consciousness. That's the real so unity consciousness. Advaita is not, as it's currently interpreted, authentic unity consciousness because it has a secret and crippling dualism, a dualism of rejection of matter that cannot lead to unity consciousness because the divine is totally embodied in every cell of every being and everything is divine right so So there's no unity conscious there there's suicidal separation memory the suicidal separation of materialism, two kinds of materialism, one addicted, one negating materialism, none divinizing, celebrating. Brilliant. 
No, that's your work. That's well, why I love your that's work. Our, well, that's our work. So, so that's self. Yes, it's the work of our time, actually, because if there is any deep thrust of our time, it's towards embodied divine spirituality. It's there is a birth taking place, and it's the birth of a new kind of human being, a mutation, and that mutation has to go through this radical, glorious descent into everything that we've abandoned and betrayed and battered down and suppressed. Nothing less than the embodied Godhead, the real, every nitty-gritty, savage, shadow-written aspect of it to become one with the whole enchilada, transcendent and imminent, the real self. Got it. So, so that's anyway, the work, isn't it? I got, absolutely. But but given that we've gone so we've come to it from different angles, you and I, because I came to it from the transcendent down. I had to face the yeah. the mess after a big awakening, and you tunneled up in this astounding work that you've done to really say. Look, we can't afford any of these avoidant patterns now. We have to go straight into the whirlwind of our authentic, embodied, fully sexual, fully psychological, fully traumatized and traumatizable humanity. We've got to go through that whirlwind to become real enough to deal with this crisis. Right. So my que- the question I have for you, Andrew, is given how far we've gone down the road to self-destruction, and not healthy self-destruction. And given, you know, just seeing the pushback that I get from this book, Grounded Spirituality, from people who are lodged in a patriarchal construct or notion of spirituality, vertical, rising above, mastery, or what I call masturbation-centered, what's it going to take to transform our world to the point where we can begin to take the steps that are necessary to save this species, given that dissociation, transcendence, uh, self-destructive patterning, all of this is everywhere, verticalness rather than a horizontal awareness. I mean, if if I keep pondering my navel and looking upward and away from the human experience to find my awakening, I'm not going to not only am I not going to notice what's happening around me horizontally, I'm not going to give a shit what's happening around me. That's exactly right. How do we shift? and, And the more uncomfortable it gets, the more people have a tendency to dissociate. So what has to happen on a moment-to-moment, day-to-day level before people are brought back down into their body, into a horizontal consciousness, before it's too late. And can it happen? happen? It can happen, but I'm afraid the answer is a very frightening one. I think the only way it can happen is through a fundamental shattering open of the human race through extreme crisis, which is not terminal. Because I think the apathy and the avoidance and the magical thinking and the corruption and the radical rot of conscience have all gone far too deep for anything less than this kind of electromagnetic nuclear shock through the entire human system at this point. Given that possibility, and there are so many ways it could come, it could come through Iran, it could come through the Syrian crisis, it could come through the craziness in the White House. It could come through economic collapse. It will come. Something of that magnitude is coming. Given the immensity of such a possibility, what I feel is that a vast energy of 
concentrated divine passion could rise up in people through the range of that horror. That's what happened to me in my own dark. It was horrifying, but it schools you and beats you and sears you into profound reckoning with wilder, holier energies in you than you ever imagined. And these possess you and take you over. So I do feel that we're in an evolutionary crisis of unbelievable magnitude, but that there are ways and maps through this evolutionary crisis that could lead not just to survival of the race, but to mutation of the race in grounded, embodied, radical, divine spirituality in action. That's the vision for me. I mean, I, I think that, you know, climate change is, is probably the thing that's going to do something in terms of trying to evoke some kind of transformative process. But my concern is it's just going to bring everybody back to a survivalist consciousness where they're just that's it. Yeah, that's just the danger. and we're not going to move any closer to a more authentic, inclusive consciousness. That is certainly one danger. And the other danger is that survivalist conscience can erupt in terrible, terrible violence that just becomes yeah. naked anarchic violence on a scale that's unimaginable. That's also possible. But I think that makes it even more important for those who've glimpsed this possibility, this possibility of an embodied divine human, this real solid glowing earthy divine possibility to do everything, to model it, to witness it, to celebrate it. Because on the survival of this strain of embodied mysticism depends the divine self-image of the human for the next millennium. It's really important that it doesn't get lost. Because it's the vision of a humanity turned to gold by going through the sweat and filth and darkness and rejected, abandoned parts of the self and integrating them all and loving them all and finding the glorious divine energies hidden in them all and releasing those. That's the work. And that's the work that we're doing, trying to do. And it's really sacred because it's an offering to a new kind of person, a new kind of being that we're trying to model raggedly. I mean, it, you know, it seems to me that, that our interface with all that unresolved trauma lives at the heart of so much of this question of how, yes. how we can evolve as a humanity. Um, That's so and, true. And the narrative is changing now, moving much more in the direction, at least in the West, of an acknowledgement of this thing called trauma, a recognition that to one extent or another, everybody is a trauma survivor on this planet, yes. which I believe is true. Um, and, you know, moving in the direction of more somatic or body-centered ways of actually excavating the real material, not just talking about the material, but moving into the heart of the material. So let me, if I could just read a quote from Grounded and ask you what your thoughts are on this piece. This is a particular paragraph that's been moving pretty strongly out there. And it's from uh, the Michael Conversations in the Heart of the Matter chapter. Okay. The primary cause of our unhappiness is not our thoughts. The monkey mind is not the source of our anxiety. It's a symptom of it. Forget the monkey mind. The mind is not the enemy. Unhealed pain is. Men have been blaming the mind for their neurosis for centuries, while deftly avoiding that which sources its maladies, somatic constrictions, and unprocessed emotions stored in the body itself. So good. Like losing your keys somewhere in the house and looking for them in the car. Useless, useless, useless. 
until they stop blaming the mind and recognize that its neurosis stems from the unresolved emotional body, there will be no liberation. Shifting out of unhappiness is not a cerebral process. That's just another ineffective Band-Aid. It's a visceral, full-body experience. It's the monkey heart that's the issue, the state of inner turbulence and agitation that emanates from an unclear heart. The more repressed your emotional body, the more repetitive your thoughts. Flooded with unhealed emotions and unexpressed truths, the monkey heart jumps from treetop to treetop, emoting without grounding, dancing in its confusion. Often it is interpreted as a monkey mind. The monkey heart is reflected in repetitive thinking, perpetual anxiety, and negative imaginings, all of which are emanating from the emotional body. So for me, I love it. Thank you. This this little game they play where they're like blaming the mind and then they get in the witnessing, which is really a portion or an element of the mind in order to then tame through often addictive meditative practice, that agitated monkey mind thing for me never seemed very effective. I mean, if I did it for hours and hours, I could start entering into kind of a, a meditative stupor state that could easily be construed by people who don't understand what's going on as something called enlightenment because you're, you're not in your feeling body so much, you're dissociated from it. So you're not reacting to or responding to the things that are happening in the human frame. Let's say. Right. But when you find out about all of those so-called masterful spiritual beings who are masters of equanimity and really dissociated, and you learn about their personal lives, you realize everything is a bigger mess than anybody's ever willing to tell you because they, all they've really done is dissociated from the feeling. Um, but the feelings are still living themselves out in every part of their body. Whereas for me, when I went down into, and this, it really was an experience of the divine feminine that I, you know, I was, I was always interested. Oh, God, of course. As a warrior, as a warrior consciousness embedded in me from birth, from prior lives. I mean, I was born to be a trial lawyer. But also as a lover of women, as a celebrator of women's Absolutely. beauty and power and strength. That's Absolutely. been such a part of your life. Absolutely. And the terror of women too. Because Absolutely. of the mother and the horror of all yeah, yeah. the well, whole drama the, of the but, divine feminine, right? But the yeah. beauty, of, the beauty of my experience with my mother is my mother was so horrifying that I think on an archetypal level, I saw her as a monster and not a woman, and I right. saw my ninety-eight <laughs> your mother, yeah, yeah I, yes, uh, but she was a monster, and but right. my ninety-eight pound gr- grandmother, who was heart-centered, loving, and tender, became my symbol of woman, right? So, and I, uh, as somebody who was trapped inside of an armored warrior consciousness that was deeply conditioned in me, probably some kind of karmic carryover. I knew that my work in this life was to drop below it and explore something called surrender, to explore something right. called receptivity, to learn what it was like to cry and release and to feel unified at the end of the release of those holdings. So I had the experience of finding my unity consciousness through dropping down into the emotional body and clearing the debris rather than rising above the emotional body and doing something called dissociation, right? I think that's so important because if it actually depends, I think, on how you come into the process. Some people are born with an opening to the transcendent that is inescapable in their lives. They have to go through the shattering light experience. And that's tremendously dangerous because it can lead, as it's led in history, to an addiction to transcendence. So they come into the body in a different way than those who are already traumatized in the body. There's a very peculiar separation. 
I had to accept that the awakening to transcendence I had very young, which was very shattering, was an extremely narrow one and deeply, deeply flawed if it wasn't balanced absolutely by a radical surrender to embodiment. Otherwise, it would be madness, psychosis. Mm -hmm. And I think the question that arose from that for me was, is there a way we can truly feel and be that marries the highest transcendent knowledge of our divine origin with the most absolute naked living of this moment as us in these bodies with our full emotional, psychological, physical intelligence divinized and awake. Well, and that is the question, isn't it? Well, it is. So for me, the difference was this. So when I endeavored to experience something called unity consciousness disconnected from selfhood right the experience i had was radically different a a radically different experience of something called the unified field than what i experienced through a more healed and integrated self right right so it's and the difference is in the first case it was unsustainable and it had a it had a avoidant quality to it. It was it was unity, but it was unity minus something that was fundamental. The latter experience, I felt as though I was actually here for it. I felt like I had feet for it. And I felt like it was emanating from a more integrated selfhood so that my access point or my perspective on unity was remarkably different. Yes. The avoidance. So Michael in the book, what he's calling unity consciousness is not what Jeff Brown in the book is calling unity consciousness. Oh, God, no, no. Because you're, you're, the vision that's coming through you is of a groundedness that's emanated from a full-on visceral embrace of everything in life all at once with the highest kind of commitment and surrender. So it's in realment, it's in realment right? So right. my notion of hereness, so for me, presence is a whole being experience or it's nothing at all, right? Right. And Michael's experience of presence, the last thing he wants is a version of presence that... So here's a good example for me. I did this insight and opening workshop years ago in Massachusetts was Stan Groff, the holotropic guy, and Jack Cornfield. So Jack would have us all sit, you know, caffeinated Westerners in Vipassana. We would listen to his lovely, funny stories. He's a great storyteller. And then we would have this mindfulness practice. And, you know, we'd sit kind of annoyed and I'd be like agitated and I'd look around, everyone's agitated, you know. And at the end of it, I didn't really feel meaningfully different than how I felt going into it. And before I went in to see Jack, there was a bull rush field at the Governor Dubber Academy in Massachusetts. And I looked at that and I felt separate from that. And then after I went with Jack and did mindfulness a bunch of times, I sat in front of the bull rush field and it still felt kind of separate and distinct for me. Then I went and did Stan Groff's holotropic breath work. And I went in for three hours, which felt like 300 hours. And I threw the assistance off my back. I threw my mother symbolically off the back. And I went into the deepest, most guttural, most primal fuck you I ever, ever held and tried to move so much of that material. Wow. I was, then I was at the three hours, which felt like 300 hours. The two assistants, Jim Bean, and I can't remember her name. They kept coming over. They intuitively knew to get on top of me. And I would literally throw them off. Like I was suddenly a star after. It's insane. Yeah. Like one of those mothers that lift trucks. Yes. Absolutely. And so then I went outside and sat in front of the same bull rush field and I felt completely at one with that field. 
completely different experience of unity consciousness, actually felt unified, felt like yeah. I understood what unity consciousness meant, what all yes. oneness meant, because I could experience all of it through this heart of mine. And this body of yours. And it wasn't a mind. Body. Body. It wasn't no. a notion of something. It wasn't no. where Jack was leading me. And, it, no. and then I sat down that night to meditate after that and felt naturally meditative. I was already here. Right. I didn't have to sit in a sitting practice to get here. I got here through the enlivening, surrendering to, and discharging of my emotional material, that which was obstructing my clarity. And the other interesting thing I found through all of these various processes around moving emotional material was that, you know, for me, emotional maturity and spiritual maturity were the same thing. And that's not the patriarchal teaching. So the more work I did clearing the emotional debris and maturing in my emotional body, the more I matured in my spiritual body. It's a completely different experience than everything I read in almost every one of those man-written books about spirituality. Well, because the whole patriarchal separation of spirit and matter corrupts the whole experience. Both are totally sacred. They're two sides of an absolutely unknowable mystery. Right. So, the, right. Well, unknowable or ultimately knowable if we just do deeper work. That's a whole other question. But, you know. Oh, God. No, 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 no. So, it can never. Yeah. Anyway, go on. That's we'll leave that for part two. Yeah, part two. So, but so the whole system, it seemed to me, it came to I came to understand this. Hung out with Bhagavad Das, made Karmageddon. All of this was learning for me that really they were all splitting humanists from spirituality. They were seeing these as two separate entities. Now we see how controlled we are if we buy into that. The guru can do anything he wants and say that's not who who he really is. That's just his personality, right? Right. That's the easiest game in the book. Yes. Well, that's the game. That's the whole game. I mean, that's, right. that's how right. you control people, you know, and people gojectify the guru because they don't know how to find God in the mirror. They certainly didn't find it in their parents. They can't they don't know where to look for God anywhere in the, the lives that they live. So and they, no one has ever really told them that they are the makings of God right absolutely. there. We're right. all shamed. We're all Jesus. Shamed. Jesus tried. The great ones did try. They came in with radical messages that were co-opted, but my God, it's been an astounding slaughter of the real truth of the divine and the human in every human, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a huge deal, isn't it? When you think about it, it's the only thing that can wake us up. And yet it's so far from what we're being taught and what we're being told and what we're continuing to be told. Well, just think of it in terms of the basic so-called spiritual teachings around the ego. So you go into right. see a therapist in order to feel better about yourself and develop and strengthen the healthy ego so you can function better in the world and achieve what you want in your life. And you hang around spiritual people. They tell you the only path is the dissolution of the ego. So... Even if somebody begins to approximate or have an internal experience of self-honoring of a healthy egoic sense of their own magnificence without being narcissistic about it, they have another voice in their head saying that that's not spiritual at all, that the only thing that's spiritual is to completely deny, dismember, and dissolve the ego. So this is so sick, isn't it? It's such a sick, torturing game. Yeah. You know what's helped me very much, and I, I'd love to share it with you, is this astounding and complex and rich concept and vision that the Sufis have of what they call divine pride. They make it absolutely clear that at the highest levels of awakening, what's needed is for you, as you, your essential self, to claim your gifts, your powers in divine pride. Because it takes you over fake humility and it gives you direct initiation into the fullness of what's being given to you by grace. 
And it's a very big step in the stage of the lover and the warrior because it means that you really do have to claim your full embodiment as an immense gift from the great giver and dance with it fully to express all of you as a supreme act of prayer and celebration and service. And that's that's your offering to the world as well. That is your offering to the world. It's your dance of your whole being for the dancer to those in the dance, dancing with you. It's the final celebration on every level, transcendent and imminent, of your ultimate identity. You are the universe speaking to me as the universe. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And normally, that's what's normally happening. It's nothing extraordinary about it. It just is perfectly and absolutely astounding and breaks open every box and releases you into the freedom of your ordinary divine humanity. That's the great freedom. So, Andrew, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is, you know, in my on my journey, I found that what really cracked me open to this notion of spirituality was love, was love experience. Yes. How could it be different? It well, has to be loved. Same, it could claim it could never happen that way, and that that what's happening relationally is something else. And the, That's such well, madness, isn't it? I mean, when you think of all the great mystical poets, especially Rumi, for example, being so blasted open by love to love, right? But you know, when, when so when Ken Wilber went and he started to study and research all of the various traditions and weave them together into an understanding of this thing called spirituality or heightened consciousness. You know, it seemed very obvious to me he was relying on the wisdoms that were articulated by men, one man after another, talking about really individual experience, the meditator in the cave for 300 years, with, you know, going to Brahman, whatever that whole process was. And yet I had this relational experience that I wrote about an Uncommon Bond, where I went so much deeper, so much farther, so much more co-creational in terms of my experience of the unified field through the heart of connection. Right. And I, as I look around and I understand that Rumi's been writing, wrote about this forever and has been, and his work impacted so much. Yes, work, but, but it's always a fresh discovery. But there are very few models that really even begin to articulate in the way that men have articulated these singular consciousness models, what happens in the relational field. And it feels to me as though until that begins to happen, we're not even going to begin to understand why it is that we're here together. I love what you're saying because it's, I'll give you an example in my own life because one of the things that has been astounding me is the depth of love that I'm discovering with my own cat. This relationship is flowering madly, quietly, sweetly in the core of my life and I am being initiated into a level of tender presence that I'd never even glimpsed through this pure, wild, holy love that we have. What's quite clear to me in this experience particularly is that I have everything to learn from it. And that every time I learn how to be with my cat more and more tenderly and to touch her more and more tenderly and to allow her to go deeper into the kind, quiet bliss she goes into when she feels totally safe, Every time that happens, I myself become more absolutely present in every cell of my being, in every bone, in every part of my skin. I become able to love and be loved and love reality and be loved back by it. It's a very extraordinary experience. And I think 
that's the experience really at the heart of grounded spirituality. It's everything you say, the clearing of the emotional debris and all of that, that's got to happen. That volcano has to erupt. What happens when that eruption has happened and you start being opened in these delicate, amazing ways to new tenderness with your friends, with your buddies, with your woman, with your man, with your plant, with your cat, with your dog, with the faces you see in the street, with the daffodils, with everything, that amazing opening to just being in love with this vast experience with your whole being, that's the amazing possibility that only grounded spirituality can offer. That is the real experience of Sahaja. That's oneness. That's why we're here to have that experience. Normally, it's so beautiful that you're you're saying all of that, Andrew, and you're merging into the flower image behind you. <laughs> this golden flower, this is a great friend of mine who painted this. I love it because it's like, I feel it's like the Sufi heart. It's burnt yeah. and it's wild and it's dancing. It's yeah. Rumi's heart. It's beautiful. entirely turned to gold. Fantastic. But that, I think, is absolutely what I hear in your book. That's why I love the ferocity of the book, because... I don't know if you've had reaction against that ferocity, but that ferocity is, it's time that people really understood that that kind of ferocity is not the masculine hit you over the head with a blunt hammer ferocity. It's actually the ferocity of the black Madonna. It's the fierce feminine outrage that says no more killing of the body, no more killing of this. That feels really right. You know, I mean, so so mostly it's been positive, but there's a whole group of people who come after me and attack my critically reviewing tole. Like you're not allowed to. They're fine with critical review of political um, approaches and legal decisions. Applying into this notion of spirituality, nobody's allowed to talk about it, deconstruct it, review it. Even though teachings affect millions of people's lives, trauma survivors get led in the wrong direction by various exactly. To me, it's the most obvious thing in the world that. And as more people move towards this thing called spirituality and away from religion, it seems absolutely imperative to me that we open up the door to these kinds of conversations where we can deconstruct openly and comfortably. So what often happens is men come on and they accuse me of doing it because I'm jealous of Eckhart Tolle. I couldn't imagine anybody on the planet I would be less jealous of than Eckhart Tolle. And I don't. George Clooney, maybe Eckhart Tolle, not right. Not even George Clooney, maybe Andrew. Oh, I'm quite jealous of George Clooney. Actually, no, I'm not. But it's such rubbish, isn't it? Why can't they really acknowledge that you have a deep philosophical and spiritual objection to how he teaches? To and I care, and I care, and I care about humanity. I, I, you know, I, I mean, if you care about humanity, you're going to enter into a state of activism where you're going to look at everything clearly and closely, and you're going to discuss the merits and detriments of various approaches. I think so few of us are motivated by this great desire to help humanity that we don't even know how to identify what that is when we see it. So we put it into the category of jealousy, economic benefits, uh, trying to draw attention to myself. If anything, I feel very uncomfortable about this message coming through me. Don't think it's economically beneficial at all. I think it's probably economically detrimental for me to, for, I mean, if I wanted to just think about achieving in the economic realms in this writing field, I would write very gentle, soft touch things about the sacred purpose, the passive purpose. 
I wouldn't be critically reviewing. Oh, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. God, man, that's not, you wouldn't be doing that because the crisis is now apocalyptic. We can't respond to this madness no. with trivia. And we have to go deep as wild as we can and offer no. the very best of what we can because people need inspiration like oxygen at this moment. Absolutely. That's that. That's a good hour. Yeah, let's uh, let's call that one. Let's call that one. Um, I love that. I I love the freewheeling of it because we circled around important things very deeply. I love this way of talking to you because I feel close to you when we talk like this. Yeah. Okay. Over the moon and through stars, the arrows come straight.